Radio Mano Papachango. Happened to be on a cruise ship called the Norwegian Escape uh, on a thing called the Summit at Sea excursion. I forgot to mention last week where I was going. I keep I keep telling you about where I've just been, but I forget to tell you where I'm going. I don't know if there's a metaphor in there, but anyway, uh, yeah, I went. I flew down to Miami and um, went on this giant cruise ship which if you haven't been on a cruise ship, apparently this is one of the newest ones. And it's essentially a floating casino. It's got that sort of, you know, everything's reflective, kind of cheesy, cheap yet expensive looking kind of vibe. And um, anyway, so I was on this thing. These people have invited me to come and speak at their events several times. Uh, Summit is like kind of like Ted, but a little younger crowd, more up and coming. It's one of these things. It's it's essentially a networking organization where they um, curate. Curate is a big word in this community. They curate content. That was me. I was the curated content along with Wim Hof and Graham Hancock and um, Eric Schmidt from Google and Quentin Tarantino and Kendrick Lamar and, um, you know, a whole bunch of people. If you Google Summit at Sea, you can see the whole roster of who was there. And uh, anyway, they invite, you know, people that they think will be interesting to this crowd. And then they uh, also sort of filter the people who apply as just regular people who want to come um, so that you're likely to meet someone uh, who is either going to be interesting or at least going to be of some value to you in terms of your business networking. So there are lots of CEOs and founders of this and that and people work at NGOs and uh, nonprofits and international organizations of one sort or another. So it's an interesting crowd. Uh, it's a little, you know, it's not my people really. It's, it's sort of the young and the rich and the ambitious and, you know, people who are, you know, got the world by the tail kind of people. Um, anyway, that's where I was. Now I, I had said no to this several times in the past, partly just cause I know it's not, you know, like I meet interesting people every time I go to a party in L.A. or every time I fucking walk down the street in L.A., which is one of the reasons I'm in L.A. at the moment. Um, But so I I don't really need that. That's not a big value for me. Uh, And those, as I said, they're not my people. I don't have anything to pitch. You know, I don't have any new app that I need someone to invest in. And that's the kind of world that that is. Um but anyway, I decided to go this time because Graham was going to be there, Graham Hancock, and uh, Wim Hof was going to be there, and Esther Perel, and a bunch of people I know and like, and so it was a chance for us to sort of hang out on a cruise ship for a few days, or so I thought. As it turns out, the way they set it up, it's very difficult uh, to hang out 
with your friends if you're the content because, you know, everybody else wants to meet you or, you know, not so much me, but, you know, Wim and uh, Esther and, you know, the bigger stars. Kendrick Lamar certainly wasn't just looking around for somebody to chat with, you know. So uh, that kind of thing. I thought that there would be like a dinner for just the presenters or, or, you know, ways that we would interact with each other sort of in a separate space so we could have some time and all that. No, it totally none of that. Um, and the other thing that was weird about it is that you get on this giant cruise ship. I mean, it's giant. There are water slides up on top and swimming pools all over and hot tubs and, you know, 15 restaurants and, you know, you know the scene, right? And they had rented out the whole thing. So everybody on the ship was involved in this. And I think they charged 2500 bucks a ticket. And they had, I think someone told me there were 4,000 people there. So do the math. That's over $10 million. I don't know what it costs to rent that boat for a few days. But in any case, what we do, we get on this boat and we go out and we just go in a big circle. We went over to the Bahamas, docked in uh, Nassau for a few hours and then left and went and just went in a big fucking circle and then came back to Nassau and then went to Miami. And meanwhile, there are all these environmental people on there and people talking about how we're going to save the world and we're going to do this and we're going to do that. How much fucking carbon did we just pump into the atmosphere taking this giant floating skyscraper out into the ocean in a big fucking circle? What the fuck? So that's where I was when Trump was elected. Uh, it was the first night on the boat. Dinner started. Uh, the first states were starting to come in along with everyone else. I thought Hillary was going to have a landslide. For me, the question was, would she have both houses of Congress or not? I was hoping she would, of course, because then we'd get liberal justices on the Supreme Court, at least liberal in American terms. And the next few decades would be marked by this incredible mistake that the Republicans had made in letting this fucking maniac become their nominee. I was feeling pretty smug about it. Not that I'm a big Hillary Clinton fan, but, you know, uh, between the two options, uh, that was certainly more in alignment with my values. But anyway, by the end of dinner, it was clear that the shit had hit the fan. And uh, the entire fucking world had changed. The future had changed. Our sense of the American electorate had changed. Our sense of what was possible in American political life had changed. And honestly, it was as if, I mean, I was, I was an infant when Kennedy was shot, but it kind of, I'm sure it, there was that sense of shock. There was just people were walking around stunned. And um, I don't know if I've talked about this before on the podcast, but my feeling, I, I, I've had mixed feelings about this from the get-go. Because as I say, I mean, I, in my opinion, Trump is a fucking idiot. Not, a, not stupid, mind you. Uh, obviously, he's got a certain kind of intelligence in abundance, a very tactical... Um, ability to recognize 
trends within a culture and to capitalize on them, literally capitalize on them in his professional life, metaphorically in his political life. So that counts as a certain type of intelligence. Uh, on the other hand, I think he's severely lacking in the other types of intelligence that most of us value more highly than the ability to um, manipulate crowd psychology, uh, emotional intelligence, uh, the sort of intelligence that uh, manifests as respect for other people, uh, any sort of wisdom as to the true meaning of life or the purpose of human existence, any of those sorts of things, I, I think he's, you know, in the bottom five percentile or something. But uh, he's got what it takes to do what he does. So that's what he does. He's a very, uh, you know, he's like an organism that evolved to fulfill a very specific niche, like a shark or, a, you know, one of those vultures that smears shit on its face to impress females. But as I said before, and I don't, I, I don't remember, I apologize if it was on the podcast, but I've said to friends, I kind of feel like American culture is like, you know, your alcoholic friend who's really brilliant when he's got his shit together, but he's a mess so much of the time and does so much damage in his confusion and, and uh, drunkenness that you kind of, you're kind of hoping he'll hit rock bottom sooner rather than later. You know, you're kind of hoping he'll wake up naked in prison, uh, you know, uh, missing a few teeth and sort of have that moment where he says, holy shit, what have I done? Well, he's still got some money in the bank before his wife's dumped him, before his kids have vowed never to talk to him again, before he's lost his job, before everything is totally gone. You kind of hope he'll have that holy fuck moment when there's still some gas in the tank, you know? And so to me, Donald Trump is the holy fuck moment. Now, the thing is, I thought that America had had holy fuck moments before. I thought Ronald Reagan was a holy fuck moment. It was for me. When Ronald Reagan was elected, you know, on the one hand, you had this decent man, Jimmy Carter, who's still a decent man, who's, you know, in the 30 or 40 years since he was thrown out, he has proven in every day of his life, what a decent, intelligent, kind man he is. He's everything Donald Trump isn't, right? And you have him get tossed out because the Iranians took some fucking hostages and he couldn't figure out how to get them out. Nobody could have, by the way, except George Bush, who allegedly flew to Madrid and had a secret meeting with the Iranian government and cut a deal where we, the United States, would sell missiles to Iran, our sworn enemy, or not even, yeah, yeah, we would sell them to Iran uh, in exchange for them releasing the prisoners, but not releasing the prisoners until the day Reagan was inaugurated. So this has been alleged by credible journalists who've investigated this. I don't remember the names, but if you Google it, you'll, you'll read all about it. George Bush was the head of the CIA at some point, I think, under Nixon. And then he was obviously vice president under Reagan. And so he set up this deal where we would sell missiles to a terrorist nation, which was against the law, American law. 
and then take the money and use it to fund these death squads in Central America that were running around raping and killing women and children and murdering men, shooting people, wiping out entire villages in Nicaragua and Guatemala and El Salvador. If you weren't alive then, you won't remember any of this or you were a kid or whatever. But it was fucking horrible. Ten, hundreds of thousands of people were killed in Central America by these U.S.-trained, U.S.-funded death squads. Why? Because Nicaragua had a socialist government. Nicaragua wanted to fund uh, education and health care and follow a Cuban model of taking care of the people rather than letting corporations take everything and suck the money out of the country and leave everybody living in abject poverty. Well, for that crime against capitalism, they had to be squashed, just as Cuba had to have an embargo for 50 fucking years. So... Daniel Ortega won the election, free and fair election, in Nicaragua. And that's when the U.S. started funding these death squads. They killed Archbishop Romero. They killed nuns. It was just insane, right? Anyway, look it up. It's, it's the, the Dire Straits album Brothers in Arms is about the Central American conflict. In fact, why don't I play... Why don't I play... That song, it's it's a beautiful song and it really gives a sense of what the war was like in Central America. Um, but before I do, geez, I'm 13 minutes into this. I haven't told you who the guest is. I'm really bad at this. This week's guest is Brian Norgard. He is the head of product development, I think, or just product and of revenue at Tinder. So he's like one of the top guys at Tinder. He's one of these, you know, one of these dudes in his 30s, came straight out of college, founded companies, sold them, founded another one, sold it, you know, and now he's uh, and now he's sort of an elder in that world, ironically and hilariously to me um, at 34 or whatever he is. Uh, and he's also very cool, very relaxed, open and willing to talk about his experience in that world and what it's like to be in your mid thirties and be, you know, sitting on more money than, than you can probably ever spend. Um, and, uh, yeah, he seems to be a very well adjusted, very together guy and obviously extremely intelligent, um, at, uh, running businesses and that sort of thing. So I was happy to have a chance to sit down and talk with him. He invited me through Twitter, he just saw that I was in L.A. and he's like, hey, come down to Twin Tinder, you know, show you around. And and I was like, yeah, maybe we can do a podcast and we'll see. And anyway, so I went down and uh, yeah, it showed me around the headquarters. And then we sat down in a conference room and had a, a really interesting conversation. So unusual guests for this podcast. Obviously, I don't get a lot of, you know, moguls. I don't know if you can call it, is media. Do you have to be in media to be a mogul? I don't know. Anyway, uh yeah, unusual. But, um, you know, as with all the other guests, what he has in common is he's fucking smart and he's interesting and he's open. And uh, it was <laughs> it was great to be able to chat with him. So we'll get to that in a few minutes. But first, here's a song about uh, the conflict in Central America by Dire Straits. It's called Brothers in Arms.
of destruction Baptisms of fire I've witnessed your suffering As the battle reached high And
Brothers in Arms by Dire Straits, about the conflict in the 80s in El Salvador and Nicaragua. Google it. Death squads. Archbishop Romero. The nuns that were assassinated. By the way, we didn't just give these guys weapons. What we did was we sold the missiles to Iran against our own laws, took that money and used it to fund an illegal war against our own laws, again, in Central America, so that the American people wouldn't be able to vote against it, so that Congress wouldn't be able to stop that from happening. So the CIA went completely outside the laws by raising the money and then by spending the money, selling weapons that were manufactured with American taxpayer money, American scientific community, research, et cetera, et cetera. If you've ever heard of Oliver North, he was the guy who was, who was in charge of this operation. And uh, yeah, now he's like a right-wing radio commentator or some shit like that. Um, and we trained these guys in how to torture. They came up to, I think it's in Georgia, a place called the School of the Americas, where the United States uh, intelligence and military community taught um, uh, Latin American uh, military people how to torture and how to assassinate. So we really, when you wonder why Latin Americans are so fucking anti-American, that's why. You wonder why Iranians are so anti-American. That's why their torture squads were taught by the same people, by the American experts. Anyway, uh, don't want to get too far off on that tangent. But the point is that in my mind, Donald Trump is the end result of a process that started in 1980 when Ronald Reagan was elected and Jimmy Carter was tossed out in a humiliating defeat. Because what happened then was that for the first time, the marriage of advertising and politics was consummated. That was when you had the, all the, the scientific research on mass psychological manipulation that had been developed over the decades, since the 20s, uh, really, um, where Edward Bernays started this sort of research with focus groups and, you know, message manipulation to, uh, to, to mold the consciousness of the, the mass electorate. That's when you, you really see the commercial interest understood that the money's not to be made in appealing to smart people, right? You sort of think, you know, like me as a writer, I'm, I'm writing for a smart reader. I'm writing for you. When I do this podcast, it's for you. And when I think of you, I think that you're a really smart person. You're like someone I want to hang out with. You're my friend. But that's not where the money is. The money is talking to the average person. And the average person, as George Carlin said, you know, think of, the av think of how intelligent the average person is. And then think about the fact that half the people are dumber than that person. Right? Because that's what average means. That means... Half the people, you know, that's that's the norm. That's the middle. Uh, and in this case, that's the median as well as the average, I guess. So half the people in the world are dumber than the average person. That's a scary thought. But that's where you want to pitch your message because that's where most people are. That's the height of the bell curve. So if you're trying to sell something, 
you're going to make more money if you can sell it to the average person than to the smart person. If I could do a podcast, you know, if everybody listened to podcasts, which they don't, I think, you know, at this point, the podcast audience is skewed toward intelligence and youth. Um, but if it weren't, if it like television, that's why television is so fucking stupid. That's why the commercials are so annoying because they're not for you and me. They're for dumb people. They're for average people. Why am I talking about that? Oh, politics. So, so the sort of inclination, the natural inclination of intelligent, ambitious people is to appeal to other intelligent, ambitious people. But that's a mistake because what you want to do, especially in politics, is appeal to the average. You want to appeal to the masses. And so Ronald Reagan and his team of advisors that came in from Wall Street and Madison Avenue, they really understood that. That's why they had an actor, right? He didn't know shit about policy. He didn't need to know anything about policy because they understood that the president is a figurehead. The president is not really a leader. In most cases, the president is the guy who stands up and does the public relations and the people in the back room, they're the leaders. Most of Reagan's cabinet came from one company, Bechtel, a privately held oil petroleum resources company. It's uh, very secretive. One of these sort of companies you never hear about, but that runs the fucking world. His chief of staff, his attorney general, I don't I, go. You can Google all this shit. It's like five members of his cabinet came from this one company. So you had oil money and you had uh, Wall Street and um, Madison Avenue advertising expertise all coming together and packaging politics as a commercial product that, that was being sold to the public. So it really that's when this whole thing started. OK, and then what happens when you're selling this product to the public? You don't really give a shit about what's real, just like with all these this shit that they sell on TV. It doesn't matter if it's real. It says natural, all natural. Nobody gives a fuck if it's natural. They just find, oh, what are the legal requirements for saying natural? Oh, you just have to, you know, do this, do that. Okay, we'll do it. It's bullshit. Everyone knows it's bullshit except the people who buy it. And that's politics now. So what's happened is since Reagan, in any case, you've got this commercialization of politics and you've got a dissociation of American political life from reality. Reagan's the one who started trickle down economics. What is trickle down economics? It's packaging, it's framing of the same old thing, which is fuck the poor people, give the money to our rich friends, right? That's, that's what politics is all about. Who gets the money, who gets the resources, but they repackage it in this clever way where they say, no, if we give all the money to the rich people, then they'll invest it in companies and businesses and that'll produce jobs. And then the money will trickle down to all you people. Lucky you. So all we need to do is give more money to rich people and then it'll it'll trickle down to you. We'll you know, spray water at the top of the hill and it'll come down to you at the bottom of the hill. Isn't that a great idea? So they cut tax rates at the top percentages, gave all this money to the top, shut down all the mental health centers and uh, community resource centers, just totally slashed the budgets of that, put more money into military and cut the, the tax rates on rich people. So 
all the money starts flowing upward toward the wealthy, toward the corporations, away from the bottom. You have crises throughout the country. You have cities falling apart. You have the infrastructure starting to fall apart. You have the middle class starting to shrink. That was 1980. Here we are. What, 26 years later? Infrastructure is totally fucked in this country. By the way, the war on drugs amped up under Reagan. Prison population skyrocketed under Reagan. So here we are, 26 years later. The middle class is practically non-existent. The industrial base is totally destroyed because of globalization, which works for rich people and corporations and fucks poor people and normal people. You've got all these things that were put into effect under the Reagan administration in the early and mid 80s that have come to fruition. And one of the things that's come to fruition is that finally, finally, middle America, those fucking average intelligence people that all this shit was used to convince that by giving rich people more money, somehow they were going to get more. Finally, they're looking around and saying, this sucks. This doesn't work. You people in Washington are full of shit. Took them 26 years to figure it out, but they finally figured it out. That's my theory. And so Obama, eight years ago, hope and change. Black dude, smart, slick, cool guy, admits he smoked pot, admits he did coke. Let's vote for him, right? Let's get somebody new in there, young. He's going to change shit. He goes in there. He hasn't changed much anything. Guantanamo is still fucking open, still dropping bombs all over the world, blowing people up. Oh, sorry. You were at the wrong fucking wedding, man. Sorry for you and your family. You were standing next to some guy that we want to kill. Sorry. Yeah, we got people in prison for 20 years. Well, yeah, they didn't do anything, but we, we don't know what to do with them. So we'll just keep them in prison. That's America. Yeah. Land of the fucking free. Still have more people in prison than any other country in the world, including fucking China, which has what? 10 times our population. I don't even know. I can't think right now, but we are still the most imprisoning the, the, you know, the huge disparity between rich and poor, the healthcare still sucks. Yeah. Obamacare, whatever. What is Obamacare? It's, it's just giving more fucking money to insurance companies is what it's doing. That's the only way they would come on board because he couldn't get anything passed if he didn't uh, placate the insurance companies. I'm not blaming Obama. The Republicans blocked everything he tried to do. Their whole agenda was fuck this black guy from day one. They've admitted it. They said it. Mitch McConnell said it. So my view of what's happened with this Trump thing is people voted eight years ago for change. We didn't get change. So now this election comes around and what do you got? You got Hillary Clinton, which if you had to pick any politician in national American political life who represents more of the same, it's Hillary Clinton. Not only is she another fucking Clinton, we've had two Bushes, now we're going to have another fucking Clinton. She's been in Washington for fucking 30 years or whatever it's been. She's, you know, another typical rich, ambitious, bullshitting Wall Street fucking sucking, you know, come on. You give a speech for $250,000 for a 30-minute speech? Fuck you. And then you won't release the transcripts? 
Yeah, fuck you. You're getting checks for a million dollars from Saudi Arabian assholes, giving money to your Clinton Foundation. You don't think they expect something from you? Come on, man. And they screw over Bernie. They screw him. The DNC fucks him over, which we find out after it's too late to do anything. So what do you got? You got a choice between more of the same and this maniac. And so people vote for the maniac. Because you'll vote for anything other than more of the same. Or at least a lot of people would. And I can't say I blame them. I know that I, it's ridiculous. I feel ridiculous saying that, but I can't say I blame them because the truth is that when you're, you know, when you're headed in the wrong direction, pretty much anything is better than more of the same. And this country's obviously been heading in the wrong direction. Washington is totally unresponsive. The media is totally out of touch with what's going on in this country, the suffering that people are going through. And I don't believe that it's a resurgence of racism. Now, of course, the racists are encouraged by this because Trump is a fucking racist lunatic. But I don't believe that the vote is an expression of racism. Because if you look at the the research on the votes in places like Pennsylvania and Wisconsin and Ohio, these industrial countries, I mean, uh, states, they voted, the same people who voted for Trump voted for Obama eight years ago. These rural white people, they came out and voted for Obama. So their vote for Trump isn't a vote against black people or minorities. I don't think they even really give a shit about all his rhetoric with the, the immigrants and against the Muslims. I think they're just saying, fuck y'all. And that's the only way they could say it. And if this doesn't work, then you start getting bombs going off. Then you get really crazy shit happening. And so, you know, I said when, when Sanders was running, like Bernie Sanders is the last exit before, you know, we hit the wall. If we don't take this exit, we're fucked. And we didn't take the exit. So we're hurling down the highway toward the fucking wall. And um, yeah, people are, you know, pull the ripcord for Donald Trump. I don't think it's going to help. I think he'll probably be impeached. He'll, you know, it'll turn out that he's got, you know, all sorts of illegal shit going on or whatever. Or he'll say something crazy, whatever. And we'll end up with fucking Mike Pence. Mike Pence, who like passed a law in Indiana saying that women who get abortions have to have a fucking funeral for the fetus. He's sick. The dude's a sick fucking right wing lunatic. That's what we're going to end up with. So yeah sorry 35 minutes anyway that's what i was doing i was floating around in the fucking ocean spewing carbon into the atmosphere when donald trump was elected hope you enjoy this episode with brian norgard if you're listening brian i'm sorry that the intro <laughs> such a downer but you know i don't control world events um i've been getting a lot of really good emails from you folks recently um that I want to I, I want to respond to them. I was planning to respond to a couple now, but it's already th almost 40 minutes into this and I've just been ranting. So I'll go ahead and uh, just go right into the interview, the conversation with Brian Norgard of Tinder. And I will do um, I'll do a Toma episode and, and respond to some of those very thought provoking and uh, touching emails that I've been getting. So thank you, everyone in this tribe. 
I'm so glad to be part of it and um, so grateful to you for making it possible for me to spend time talking with people and uh, and uh, meeting these people. You know, Wim Hof has become a really good friend at this point and his son Enim is, is a great friend. I spent some great time with him on the boat and that's all because of you. I, I You know, Wim wouldn't have time for me if I didn't have the kind of audience that this podcast has. So whether you're supporting the podcast financially or just by listening and enjoying it and telling your friends about it, whatever your participation is, I'm very grateful to you because it's, it's really enriched my life. And, uh, that's what it's all about, right? Cause as you know, you're going to die one day. So enjoy this conversation with Brian and, uh, I'm going to play you out with a song you've heard before called The Mark of a Good Man by Bimini Road for two reasons. One is that Bimini is an island in the Bahamas that I just floated by in the middle of the night for the first time in my life. And that reminded me of that. And also that it's a hopeful, happy, beautiful song um, by a guy who listens to the podcast, whose name I don't remember, but the band is Bimini Road. And, uh, yeah, it just seemed like, uh, let's, let's try to end on an up note so we don't go into this conversation totally depressed because it's a uplifting conversation. And after all, we do live in a beautiful world. It's still beautiful. It's still alive. Who knows what's going to happen? We might look back on this and say that this is the best possible thing that could have happened. Cause as I say, more of the same just wasn't cutting it. So We'll see. In any case, we've got each other. So keep the faith, ladies and gentlemen. Much love from Topanga. Here's The Mark of a Good Man by Bimini Road.
All right, ladies and gentlemen, I'm sitting in a conference room at Tinder headquarters, Tinder HQ. Uh, we're in the flame room. That's, I think that's what we call it. <laughs> do you know, do you have any idea why it's called the flame room? I don't see any flames Well, we, we sort of have like a motif for each room uh, about, that sort of relates to the brand. Uh, so we're not that creative about conference rooms. I got you, yeah, conference rooms. Uh, I'm with Brian Norgard, who is a big shot here. Uh, what are you, you're head of uh, product yes. and, and revenue. That's correct. Without product and revenue, there is nothing. That's it. You're ahead of everything. Uh, much. Yeah. Well, we've got a lot of great people here, so <laughs> I'll just uh, I'll deflect all of the credit. Well done. Well done. Yeah, I met uh, one of the founders earlier. That's right. Is he the founder? Are there several founders? Yes, there's a few founders. Okay. Um, well, he also deflected credit. That yeah, was nice. No, I see. A, that's how things work here. Yeah. Well, we, we try to we try to be a little humble around here. <laughs> when you get home, then you're a raging asshole. <laughs> yeah. Well, let, let's. Well, We'll, we'll save that one for later. <laughs> when you're when you're at the office, you're humble. That's good. All right, cool. Uh, and we're in Hollywood. Interesting place for Tinder to be based. Why here? Why not uh, New York or Silicon Valley or yeah? Somewhere well, else? I, you know, a lot of people ask that question. Um, I don't think you have Tinder without Hollywood. Hmm. Um, you know, and I'm, I'm talking about sort of the new version of Hollywood, not the old version, right. the studio system version. I'm right. talking about young, creative, cool people sort of on the edge of culture. Um, you know, when we launched Tinder, there was a lot of people who were like, whoa, that is an aggressive idea. So did Grindr came first, right? That's correct. And so I remember Grindr, I remember a lot of people saying, when's there gonna be a Grindr for straight people? Right, and then, you know, the apps have sort of, a lot of people compare the apps, they're very different, yeah. um, and I think like, in terms of use cases and whatnot, um, they're not apples to apples, but there was a lot of people for a long time saying there should be a straight person's right. grinder. And you know, there were other products out there. There was Match.com right. and uh, eHarmony and a bunch of other things, but yeah. like Tinder was the first true mobile first dating product right. um, that really got all of the gestures right and got all of the tricky things, the double opt-in and the big photos. There was just like three or four really smart product decisions that led to Tinder being Tinder. And I think back to sort of circling back to the uh, sort of Los Angeles thing, uh, people are just willing to take sort of cultural risks here that they aren't willing to take in other places like New York hmm. um, and San Francisco to, to an extent as well. And you know, I think mm. you look at two of the biggest consumer hits in terms of mobile, Snapchat and Tinder, they're both in LA. Really? And that's not just some random probability. But isn't it all liquid? I mean, your, your investors are all over the world, right? Money's coming from wherever, yeah, it's liquid. Yeah, but I think there's a mindset. There's a mindset that is much sort of, it's, there's a risk-taking mindset, um, perhaps sort of differing views on sexuality, different views on sort of what is culturally acceptable and not that you just really? Los Angeles has always been pushing the boundary um, in some of these yeah. departments and I yeah. think that like call it what you will it's in the DNA it's in the water supply so do you think yeah. like pivotal people here wouldn't have come to work if this if this company were based in in Provo Utah uh, they would have specifically been like... Provo yes that, <laughs> I, I think I would probably agree with you on that one um, I think things are changing. Like yeah. We have a more homogenized culture now, and people, mm. um, because of mobile, because of smartphones, millennials, like people are operating somewhat on sort of a similar level. But right. remember, sort of rewind back, like Tinder's like four or five years old, Snapchat's 
think same, same sort of same vintage. Right. Five years is a long time in the internet game. You know, it's a That's long crazy, time ago. Man. It, 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 it's moved. It's, it's moving so fast. How old are you? I'm 36. You're 36, and yep. you're like a veteran. I remember when I was the youngest guy. <laughs> so I sold my company to News Corp. I was 25 years old, really? and I thought to myself, this was my first company I sold out of Brown. I said. I I'm never I like I I thought to myself I am the youngest person I will be the youngest person forever. Yeah. Now I look out and I'm looking onto sort of the floor of Tinder and like our average employee is 26 years old. Right. Um, but it's also sort of the evolution of mobile is is sort of it's all correlated, right? The people who know how to design for this smartphone and understand it like they don't even get desktop computing they don't even understand about like you know a tower or like you know sitting in front of something you need the people that are the natives mm. and so like anything else the system sort of purges out people that don't evolve right and then brings up these brilliant new people and now you have again i mean look at all these companies they literally are i, I mean I, I don't know kind of the 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 breakdown of every company but i think the average age of most consumer technology companies got to be like 28 years old it's pretty crazy. I'm a dinosaur. Well, I, I tell you, you I, bring different skills to the table. <laughs> <laughs> That's a polite way of saying yes. You are a dinosaur. <laughs> That's great. Yeah, yeah. But I'm, so am I. I'm. I, I mean, I'm, I, the, I'm the waiter bringing waiting skills to the table. You know, That's pretty much all I've got. I mean, I remember I, when I was a kid, I had one of those modems that would literally, you know, yeah, you'd the, put it on. Yeah, you literally put it, put the phone on a cup. Oh yeah. And I was telling someone about that the other yeah. day who was like 21, and they looked at me like, "What are you talking yeah, about? Yeah, yeah. What are you talking about?" Dude, I was I was in graduate school in San Francisco in 1992, three in there. And uh, I had a compact, you know, right. computer. And I remember thinking, this is going to be big. This is this is interesting because I was in grad school, but I wanted to be in Spain. And I I decided on the school where I could do like remote learning. Right. But they hadn't they, they hadn't even thought about that you could do this stuff through the computer, you know, right. and internet and all that. And I was pushing them, and they're like, look, we know we've been doing this for a long time. And I'm like, you guys, you're missing it. You're missing the boat here, you know. And uh, yeah, I can remember thinking, yeah, this internet thing, this could go somewhere. <laughs> it's done okay. If only I'd, I'd like invested okay. in something. Yeah, it's done all right. So um, talking about the generational sure. thing, it's funny. I was on this morning. I was talking to a friend. She's 26, and she's like, "What are you doing?" I said, uh, "It's texting." I was like, oh, "I'm going to uh, Tinder headquarters. You know, I'm going to have a tour or whatever." Mm -hmm. And I spelled it T-I-N-D-R. And she she was cracking up. She's like, no, that's Grinder. There's an E in Tinder. So, but yeah. that both shows how out of touch I am, and also uh, makes me wonder: like, is the name intentionally reflective of Grinder because no, of no, that? No, no, no. I think you know we were just going for something that has you know brandability to it and sort of. So what's it mean? Uh, I mean, I, I know what Tinder yeah, is. You start a fire in the wilderness. Yeah, it's supposed to sort of emote some sort of action and something you know is happening and flammability yeah you know it's we are in the a flame little, room a little spark a little spark yeah yeah, yeah. combustibility you want that yeah. on a date of course you want a little action <laughs> so yeah that's that's kind of what we're going for and it's actually right. worked really well right um i think the brand resonates um obviously there are issues that we all face when it, anytime you get something to such you know massive scale you're yeah. going to have um you know what you would call sort of questions about your brand, but it's it's done really well for us for the last five years. How, what percentage of your users are in North America? 
Um, it's about half of our users right now, but we're growing. Yeah. Re I mean, like places like Brazil exploding. Really? I mean, just like there are, you know. Uh, countries that just sort of light up overnight and you can almost see the path you know you go okay you hit some critical mass and then boom huh. um, but I think what's also happening the internet is homogenizing culture as I mentioned before and so there are places that sort of lag they don't you know they, they, they get they get music a little you know they get music a year later they get the good films a couple years later but like that's all kind of it's all compressing yeah and so uh, an idea like Tinder, you know, 20 years ago may have, you know, taken 20 years to propagate, but now, uh, you know, explodes in North America. It hits right. in these cities, you know, like Los Angeles, Dallas, New York, Miami, and then all of a sudden, boom, pops in Rio and Barcelona, and it's the the the, the sort of time from an idea going from zero to scale has just it's just it's it's down to like almost I it, I hesitate to say this, but weeks. Yeah. I mean, look at Pokemon Go. You know, yeah. before I forget if it launched three months ago, no one ever heard of. I mean, you've heard of Pokemon, but you haven't heard of AR game, right? Yeah. Month into it, you have a hundred million installs. That's insane. Yeah. I mean, it's you know a third of the size of the population of you uh, of the U.S. is 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 playing a game within a month. Yeah. I mean that that to me is just mind blowing. But you know, to sort of the current millennial crop who's like using all these products, they think of that as the norm. Yeah. And that, that, you know, to me... Now, does yeah. that scare you? That it, the ramp up is so dramatic? Can the ramp down be just as dramatic? Yeah, but when things start to reach scale, they don't necessarily fall off a cliff unless... Uh, I mean, we, there, are, there are things that have fallen pretty fast, MySpace being one of yeah, them, but they also had a principal competitor, Facebook, that was doing incredible things, incredible product, and had a network effect that was competing against it. Right. So in network effect businesses, uh, you can see things fall off, but it's very rare. When things get to scale, they they generally sort of they they they, they if they do go down, it's sort of a slower death. Mm. But does it scare me? No, I think it's an incredible opportunity. I mean, like for people who build businesses like I do, I I think what an amazing time. Mm. You know, I used to think about even ten years ago. Wow, you know, the idea of launching a company that would be in Mexico or China or Tunisia or you right. name the place was like. It didn't. You just that was like a that was yeah. almost like a romance. Because you're thinking offices and yeah, factories. Exactly. And, yeah, exactly. You're gonna have like, to like build infrastructure and right, hire people and like right. you don't speak their language. Yeah. Now uh, you localize it in 32 app stores. Yeah. You make sure it works on Android, which is you know a dominant operating system. And you make it sure, make sure it works for Apple, and boom. There's the access, yeah. and and very few companies get there. I, I want to be clear. It, it, it this is the like 0.01 percent yeah. of companies that actually can achieve this scale. But the ones that do become incredibly valuable, interesting, and hopefully for you know in our case, hopefully around for a long time. Yeah. But technology today is incredibly hard to predict. I mean, it's always been hard to predict, but now I mean you have mobile, you have augmented reality, virtual reality, uh, you know, machine learning and all this artificial intelligence coming out, all this stuff converging at one moment. Yeah. And, you know, even the smartest people in the world, some of the best venture capitalists, best, best entrepreneurs, you know, I talk to them candidly, like, what do you think? And they say to me, I have no idea. Yeah. Like, I don't know. Right. And then you add Africa coming online and, right. you know, smartphones, the power of, you know, Basically, US, you know, they, this this phone I have in my hand right now sort of has all the computational power that the U.S. government had a decade ago. Right. Yeah. That's like the Apollo mission. Yeah. Or the, this yeah. is this is like really heavy stuff. Yeah. And the implications are going to be 
you know, I, it's just, you know, a friend of mine said the other day, which was sort of blew my mind. He's like, you realize that like some of these countries, some of these people are just skipping paradigms altogether. Like right. they, they don't, they don't understand yeah. any of the stuff that we understand. Well, like, like the laptops or the, the desktops yeah. you're talking about. Africa, they, they just went straight they, to mobile. Straight phones. to mobile. By the way, I, I'm happy to see the screen is shattered on your phone, Mr. High Tech. Yeah, I, um, <laughs> I, I will admit to something. I have shattered over 15 phones <laughs> in one you, year. How do you shatter phones? I, I've never shattered a phone. I am not. I, I, I'm, I, I'm a fumbler of the phone. You're a phone fumbler. Yeah, I am like, it doesn't matter if I'm hiking, it breaks. If I go to Malibu surfing, I drop it uh, you know my daughter wow. my daughter will play and drop it on the travertine I mean that, it, wow. yeah wow you got to get like this, I can't that, do that's it. the next generation you got to get like phones with velcro and you got a phone glove, a phone so glove. you can never drop it my buddy has a company called uh, well it's a they do nano coating for for, for phones, which is kind of interesting, where they put it through a machine and basically coats it with these nanoparticles, and then next thing you know, your phone is essentially shatterproof. Oh, so really? like, you know, that's all, it's called dry wired technology, but um, basically that's where Apple's going. That's where it still going. works. Like Everything the, works, you can't even, the there's, no, there's nothing different. It just, it just doesn't break. Yeah. yeah. So hopefully yeah. Uh, the, next, the next version will be a little stronger. Right, right. So you said you went to Brown. Mm -hmm. What did you study? So I studied uh, some economics, some sociology. Brown is a uh, really interesting place because they kind of let you roam a oh, little bit. That's nice. Um, yeah, and so we, we have a we have sort of a it's like a kind of a running joke that you don't have to have grades at Brown. They have pass or fail. So I is took, that true? Well, you do have grades. I mean, there's a it's a binary thing, pass fail. But like they sort of Brown's been very progressive. How do you a lot know of that about yeah. Brown? Oh, super progressive. Where I went to college, categories. they had the same sort of deal. Yeah, yeah. And that, but I think it's cool. It, it forces exploration. Yeah, yeah. So I got really excited about the internet at a time when sort of. You know, there was that dot-com bubble, and right. it was really quiet. So when are we talking? Mid-90s or something? Um, so this is the sort of early 2000s. Oh, okay. Um, and what really got me sort of incredibly excited was I, you know, I stumbled upon Friendster right when it launched, was sort of one of the first social networks. And mm. it took, you know, 12 minutes to sort of get my data through the system, but all of a sudden, boom. I saw a visualization of my social graph, mm. and I was like, whoa, this is going to be very okay. profound. And when you say your social graph, you're talking about your network like, of uh, friends? Like my, my friend network, and you know, it, it, this is like a very arcane version of you know, sort of what you would call traditional social networking. Right. Um, and Friendster was very early, um, but and it, you know, it sort of subsequently failed because of a lot of different things. It was fighting and fighting, and the technology wasn't up to par, and other people came along. But nonetheless, I saw it, I went, wow. This, I gotta pay attention to. And this is a time when all my friends wanted to be investment bankers at Goldman Sachs, and, right. and they were running off to you know, some, some white shoe you know, law firm after going to Yale, all that stuff. And I said, no, 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 no. I, I, this is important. I'm gonna be the black sheep, invest all my time, figure out how to get involved. And mm. um, sometime after, a friend of mine had told me about a project that was working, a, my, my old college roommate had moved up to Harvard, he transferred, and he said, oh, they're working on something. Um, they're turning the Facebook into basically a, a software program. A lot of people don't realize the Facebook is something that they give out at a lot of Ivy League schools that shows you who's in the freshman class. Right. And it was this really interesting kind of 
piece of sort of cultural fabric. Like you would get to school, you'd get your dorm room, and then like everyone would open the Facebook and like you'd look at all the people and say like, oh, I want to date her, or oh, that guy's an asshole, or oh, like I remember seeing that girl in the hall. Yeah. And my buddy called me. He said, yeah, they're gonna they're building basically the Facebook into uh, like almost like a social network. Right. And I was like, like Friendster. He's like, yeah. And I'm like, wow. Okay. This. You know, this is getting interesting. Right. So the rest is history from there. You know, I moved to San Francisco, started companies, and I think um, what's really fascinating right now is even a decade ago, this was still considered sort of, ah, you, I, I remember people telling me like, wow, you're wasting all you know your your education like you're sort of like a waste of space like why don't you go work for an institution <laughs> who the fuck tells you you're well, a waste but, of but, space but you know when everyone's going to med school and law school and all these crazy things right yeah, yeah. and you're the guy in the corner saying you want to build prototypes for social networking yeah. thingies it just didn't all sort of make sense you need more losers in your life I man. Do, uh, well yeah <laughs> Interesting comment, uh, but but then you fast forward. Yeah, you to stuff. fantastic. Well, I get we're in Hollywood Hills. I'm sure we could we could mosey up the hill and find a few. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, the what's interesting now is this is like ground zero. This is the center of the entire universe. Yeah, it went from being like yeah, and they're all trying to borrow money now. Those guys, <laughs> that, yeah. those doctors. So yeah. Like, hey, Brian, yeah. remember me? Um, so you jumped ahead there, sure. right? like so. Mm -hmm. Did you had like an interdisciplinary degree at Brown? Yes, or inter yeah. I was studying again economics, sociology, and right. then dabbling in a bunch of technology. Right. And you were you a nerd? Did you consider? Your, were you like? A I wasn't sort of a pocket protector kind of nerd, <laughs> but yeah. I mean, I, I was always fascinated with all this new stuff. So like, the technology was innately interesting. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I just love new stuff, right. and I love to get excited about things that are different and sort of off the path. And right. I, you know, the second I saw all the social stuff and you know, there was a few things going on. There was a Treo smartphone that was like a, you know, precursor to the to the iPhone that was like really interesting and you could see the writing on the wall with that. So I just had this like macro view of oh my gosh it's all going here. You kind of felt the the current of right. the culture. Exactly. Right. Exactly. The tide was sort of going out in this direction right. so then what was your social life like were you a frat boy no 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 i never did any of that stuff you were a um, misfit no I, I you know just sort of generally agreeable and had a lot of friends and and kind of different you know different groups different pods right um and you know the big sort of moment for me though is i moved to san francisco sort of right after school and that was like the early days of the social the san francisco tech scene I mean, now it is yeah. on a whole nother level. Yeah. I mean, it is supercharged. So this is what, 97? Oh, no, no, this is like 2004. Oh, I keep thinking yeah, the so, 90s. Yeah, I'm yeah, sorry. 2004, 2005. Right. Um, right. That's when I was in San Francisco, yeah. in the mid-90s, yeah. It, it, the, 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 the city was still incredibly quaint. Uh, <laughs> it, it wasn't overrun by guys in hoodies. Like, Guys like yeah. you, yeah, came guys in like and me, ruined it. exactly. Yeah, and I had well, a beautiful apartment for seven hundred dollars a month in San Francisco in the nineties. I had a place on Knob Hill with a view of the Golden Gate Bridge uh -huh. for seventeen hundred, two bedroom. Yeah, and I've heard now that it's being rented for sixty five hundred. Yeah. No parking. Yeah. No parking. Yeah. Well, you don't need parking. Your chauffeur picks you up, <laughs> yeah. takes you down to Google. Yeah. Yeah. That, um, true. So. <laughs> Yeah, so you know, moving to San Francisco and seeing just the explosion of that next sort of 
a vintage of technology that was yeah. called Web 2.0 was fascinating. Right. Um, so what did you do? Did you, you went out there, got a job? No, we started. St- to- no, my business partner and I started a company. So you had a business partner coming yep. out of college. You had a business partner. That's right. How do you do that? Well, I found the smartest guy I could find at Brown uh-huh. with an incredible computer science background, and we partnered up and. You know, we just, you know, it was interesting because entrepreneurship today has become this sort of loaded word and it's sort of flashy and cool and all that. But like back then it was, it was really labor of love and passion. We weren't Mm. trying to get an exit or trying to get an IPO. We were just like building stuff we thought was interesting. Right. And luckily we were in the current of the stuff that was, you know, there was a lot of other people that thought things were going as, you know, sort of like in this direction. So you saw this like really like almost Cambrian explosion of like people starting to experiment with social technologies and mobile technologies. And like so many things started to happen. And I was just like, you know, even if you rewind to say, call it like 2006-ish, at that point I was like, oh, I wonder if this is the top. Right. You know, I was like, is this where, is this, you know, is this market peaking? And then all of a sudden it just, we had a little bit of a freeze out in 08, and then it just exploded to a, a level that I would never have imagined. Yeah. You know, the the Uber, the Snapchat, the right. Facebook, the right. multi-hundred billion dollar enterprise level. Right. And I just remember, you know, it just starting so, so non-suddenly, you know what I mean? It just mm. felt, it, it felt like I was, like I look back and I, I literally look back at half the people I was hanging out with I can't believe the level of success. Yeah, I, I literally cannot believe it. Nice use of Cambrian explosion, by oh, the you, way. Yeah. I just want to note that. That's, no good. I haven't heard that in a conversation in a long time. Good, good. <laughs> my mother will be proud. <laughs> Is she a biologist? Yeah. No, she, no, no, no. My mother was a teacher, but my not a biologist. Uh, yeah. yeah. Um, so, okay. So you find this guy at Brown. Mm-hmm. He's really smart. He caught his skills complement your skills. That's right. You come to San Francisco together, and you start a company from uh, out the shoot, or yeah, we started a company. We, you know, like any entrepreneur, we had a bunch of sort of fits and starts before we got into what we were doing, and then um, we had sort of the idea: uh, wait, there's all this data that these social networks that people are putting on social networks yeah. about themselves, the books they read, the places they go, photos, and we said, hmm, wonder if we could sort of classify that data, like sort of take it in analyze it, and then use that information to serve a more relevant ad. Um, this is sort of the basis for all modern advertising technology right. today. So I mean, targeting. Yeah, ad targeting, bucketing, stuff like that. Right. Um, this isn't like, today this is considered sort of boilerplate, but like, you know, in the early days of, of social becoming sort of growing, this was considered a really big idea. Right. So we did that, we built a bunch of tech, and all of a sudden we ended up being acquired by uh, MySpace. Which uh, you know is owned by Rupert Murdoch. They had just been acquired for 580 million, so we were literally like acquired right after MySpace was became part of News Corp. So we worked there, um, and that was a fascinating ride seeing MySpace. You know, because I was there when it was going up, mm. and also there when it started to go down. So you you went from having your own company to being yep. absorbed and then working for someone. Right. What was that like on a personality level? Was, was that hard for you? It was hard. Uh, my my boss is was an incredible guy, his name was Adam Bain, he's now the president of Twitter. Hmm. Um, and so we had a great working relationship. And it was just, I mean, this was a time when like, just MySpace had, MySpace had it. Hmm. And a lot of people, you know, that it's sort of a joke today. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Sadly, you know, I, I think that even though MySpace didn't become Facebook, it still was MySpace. But 
it's become a bit of a pejorative, which is unfortunate. But um, nonetheless, like it was just insane to watch MySpace go. I mean, it was a juggernaut at one yeah. point. And you know, pre, you know, Facebook was around, but Facebook hadn't sort of like broken out of its sort of college shackles at that point. Right. It, MySpace was it. I mean, it was MTV. It was all of it rolled into one. Right. Um, and I just got what 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 kind of got me hooked is I saw the sort of nexus of culture. I saw them, you know, there was a day where you would have like Carmelo Anthony walking through the office and then there would be a movie star and then you would see a bunch of, you know, rappers or whatever. And I was like, wow, like this thing really is important. It mm. really is a, a distribution point for, for culture and for all of this interesting stuff. Right. And that's when I started to kind of realize, huh, maybe this is like, this is here to stay. Like, and, and you know, um, how it all unfolded and how it's played out since then, I don't think anyone could have predicted, but like at least I was like, I was really uh, excited and I still am sort of humbled to have seen that from the inside out. Because you know, so a lot of people, you never get to, never, you never get to see the train moving that fast. And, yeah. and uh, so, you know, inevitably my space, uh, you know, sort of went down, went down the tubes for a variety of different reasons. Um, but then, you know, um, I'd left and I'd started another company um, with the current founder of, of Tinder, and uh, we had some some sort of like dramatic ups and downs, and I was sort of uh, kind of on the sidelines relaxing, and then I'd start another mobile company. And Sean Rad, the founder of Tinder, came to me one day. I remember it like very specifically. He was, in his, he was in my backyard, and he said, "Hey, I'm working on a couple of concepts," and he you know, rattled off a few things that I thought were like just you know, like any entrepreneur, just crazy. Like, what are you thinking? Like, no, no, no. And he's like, well, this other thing that I've been thinking about is sort of like, you, you take Facebook and use the Facebook data and then like, you get a picture of a guy or a girl, depending on whatever, whatever you're interested in, and you can say yes or no. And if they say yes and you say yes, it's, you know, basically it's a match and you can talk to them. And I was like, okay, so it's sort of like hot or not with Facebook mashed with chat. I'm like, this is good. Right. This feels right. Like, why don't, why don't you really, really work on this? And he's like, yeah, I'm pretty excited about it too. And I'm like, should be really excited, go for it. So, um, you know, he went for it. And what was really, really fascinating is I had a friend um, who was like 22 years old and I told her about the app. And I said, there's this thing, it's called Tinder. It was literally launched you know, a few days before. I'm like, just put yourself on it see what happens and I'm like but don't don't blame me if anything goes wrong like I'm like please you know what I mean right. just just try it right. I see her two weeks later and she literally says to me I'm like how, how are things what's going on she's like I'm on I've been going on a date every single night I'm like what with what she's like with tinder you're tinder I'm like with tinder like you mean the app that I told you about she said yes I've been on a date every single night for like two weeks straight. I'm like, so it's working? She's like, I'm meeting great guys. Like, and I have all of this like opportunity. I can say no. And like some guys I'm chatting with, other guys are really cool. I'm like, this is mind blowing. Mm. Like, you know that feeling with, I think everyone who's in a creative process, when, you, when someone outside of your sort of sphere of influence says it's working and right. you're like, there's no way it's working. Like, right. there's no way anyone can like my book. Right, like, that makes sense. That just doesn't yeah. work that way. Yeah. But that happened and then Subsequently, Tinder has just gone bonkers, and I 
my the company I was working on was then acquired by Tinder. It was the first acquisition, and so I've been there. I've been here ever since. Oh, right. Yeah. Right. So. Wow, some honored success story, man. Thank you. One after another. Well, there's, you know, there's a lot. There's been some downs too, but like yeah. anything, um, I, you know, one of the things that I like to do is just keep going. Yeah. Just keep pushing. Right. What do you think the effect of Tinder is uh, on the world? It's a really profound question. Um, I probably could rattle off for this on, on this particular subject for hours. Yeah. But I think Tinder is also like I think you have to look at the narrative a little more broadly, and you have to ask yourself, okay, we have you know all these smartphones all these people in the world coming online at one point. You have Facebook Connect, which is an authentication method to you know, use Facebook data to, um, you know, you can build on top of it, right? So you have this like super highway of data with Facebook. Yeah. And then you have sort of Tinder, right? And Tinder, uh, you know, with over 120 million downloads, I mean, it's a global brand, all that. But I think what's interesting is, and, and what, what I, why I think it's a profound question is, we just get at a, a real human need. We, we strike really, really strategically at a, at a basic human need. That's and what I find so interesting. Mm -hmm. It's a very basic human need, but there's also a sense of uh, commodification and, and moving into well, a sort of robotic... Uh, yeah, any time, I mean, like, what I say to people is, and this is going backwards a little bit, but I think you'll appreciate it. Um, you know, let's just use dating as a metaphor for a second. Even though Tinder is about introduction, it's about a lot of things, but use dating as the first sort of the, the starting point. You know, the hunter-gatherer days, you're going to date sort of in your tribe or a very, very close sort of location, you right. know, proximity. You know, someone who's something, someone's a half a mile away. Right? Right, right. Then you fast forward to like the 50s, the 70s, or whatever, and like, I, I don't know the statistic, but it's something like you were going to marry someone within like nine city blocks or 40 city blocks, right? right? right. Um, now, like smartphones, they've changed so much the topology of how people meet. Yeah. They've changed so many of the rules of engagement. Yeah. Where, uh, you, you know, you're, more, you're just as likely to meet someone if you live in L.A., in Orange County, or San Francisco, Hawaii. Like, the smartphones have sort of just, like, made location almost kind of, I don't want to say irrelevant because it does matter, but it's made the world a lot smaller, a lot flatter. Yeah. And so where Tinder plays into this is I look at it as just sort of Tinder, Tinder creates choice. It creates visibility. And like anytime there's gonna be a product where there's lots of choice, you have that sort of like commodification feel mm. where like, oh, there's just so much, I don't know what to pay attention to, right? Yeah. But what I think is amazing is like you can open Tinder. Like one of my friends said this the other day, he said, you know, I used to go, not me, but him, he said, I used to go to the bars and I'd have, you know, like I'd go bar hopping to four or five different places. I'd cost me 80 bucks, right. you know, blah, blah, blah. I have all those bars in my pocket. Yeah. I wake up, you know, it doesn't matter if it's midnight or if it's, you know, five in the morning. I wake up, it, Tinder brings the bar to me. Yeah. I have all these people who are interested in potentially chatting in the palm of my hand. And like, that's insane. Yeah. And like, when you think about it, it's gonna change. It already has. I mean, the smartphone has rewired our brains. Anyone who thinks otherwise is crazy. Um, and it looked no further than someone who's 19 years old. I mean, literally, 
they're on this device. I remember seeing a statistic the other day, something like 150 times per day. Now, do you do you have any? Mm, uh, I don't know how to say this. Do you, is that good or bad? Do you have um, an opinion on that? Are we moving I, I, in the so, right direction? So, so, uh, I'm not ambivalent about it. I think there's good and bad. Um, I think this sort of level of productivity is is essentially just where it, it is. It is the nature of our human progress. Um, I think we're going to have to deal with some very, very um, tricky situations in the future. Um, it's just re it's changing the rules of engagement. It's rewiring the brains, and yeah. I think it's you know like you look at how people communicate today. Um, you know, if I said to you, um, you know, why don't you come over and just sit on my porch and we'll make some tea and chat? Like that's not what people do anymore. You know, they're on WhatsApp, they're on Tinder, they're on Kick, they're hanging on Snapchat. You know, yeah. like it's just it's just a different world. And so I think the answer is it's not. Yeah. I don't know if it's. I think there are aspects that are great. Yeah. It's going to create incredible technologies, incredible progress, longevity. Is you know, your people are going to live longer. There's going to we're going to eradicate disease. All of these things because of technology. Mm. But I think we're going to have to deal with the, some of the social implications. Yeah. And. I don't really know if anyone has, the data is not clear yet, you know, and I, I you know that there's going to be a smoking gun at some point about some of this stuff, but. <laughs> See, I, I think that yeah. that is pretty clear. I, I think, you know, all this, all the, all the promises of progress and technology mm -hmm. are, will only be realized when we're no longer human beings. So, I mean. Disease will be eradicated when we no longer have bodies, mm -hmm. you know. Uh, but do you still believe that we will sort of preserve the you know the the soul or the the version of the human that is not the flesh but the actual brain itself no i, I think you we're, think we're actually going towards purely like a machine sort of yeah, driven artificial yeah. intelligence I, I, yeah i mean I, I i wrote an article for a german magazine a few years ago they asked me to write about the future of sex mm -hmm. and I, I bifurcated the the article i said it's uh, the way i see it is like we're going down this river and there's a like an island in the middle of the river and we're either going to go to one side or the other. One side is collapse, civilizational collapse, mm -hmm. which is sounds far-fetched, but every civilization has collapsed. So there's no reason to believe this one won't. You know, they all have. Mm -hmm. um, and in that case, then I see a regression to sort of basic uh, human principles that you know in prehistory I've written sure. about. The other is that we keep going the route we're on, this this hyper technological route, and uh, we merge with technology. And, well, we already do. Yeah, you know. like I you mean, said, yeah. you know, it's rewired the brain, right? right. Like all this t television's rewired the brain. All, right. You know, telephones rewired the brain. So the brain is constantly adapting, as you say, to technological change. And I, I don't know. I mean. I feel you've probably heard Rogan talk about this, and you know Duncan and Rogan sure. and I talk about this all the time. Where it feels somewhat like we're um, uh, a transitional stage of life yeah. that is becoming technological, and I think at some point we will no longer be necessary as as organisms. And it, that yeah. point seems to be coming pretty quickly. I mean, but oh, but getting yeah. back to this, I mean, because when you were talking about your your companies mm -hmm. and the success and all that, yeah. I was thinking, I was feeling like 
it's interesting how we look at things like we're on a train and we kind of feel like we're driving it, but really the train's just going where it goes. Or we're in a river that flows the way it flows. And people like you are really good at, at saying, hey, I think it's going to flow to the right. So I'm going to like get out a little ahead of it and catch this current. Well, there's, a, there's a really interesting secret. And I'm sort of anti, in fact, I, I sort of hate all that self-help bullshit. But there is something here that I think is sort of like a kernel of truth that is one of those like immutable laws, which is finding, understanding people and understanding how they think and how they act and way, sort of being able to look at that river and watch the water, that's 90% of it. Right. I meet a lot of kids um, come up to me and say like, I, you know, I, I'm getting a computer science degree and I'm studying this and I know this program and you know, I'm also writing software in this language and like, I'm ready. And I'm like, okay, great. You know, these are prerequisites. I'm fanta it's fantastic you have all these skills. But if I could rewind time, I would take my sense of understanding people now back right. a decade. And I think that's everything. Well, you studied yeah. sociology, you mentioned. Right. You know? I, yeah. I did, but you know, it takes, this is tacit knowledge. You have to right. be in tough situations and see people interact and right. watch how people operate in a bar and watch two people who are you know, having a conversation for the first time and map that out. But that, aren't a lot that, of yeah. the central people in this world people who aren't good at social interaction? That is that is, that is true. Um, that has been somewhat of a you know a takedown of, of kind of sort of this class of entrepreneur. But in this class of entrepreneur, there are people who are great at it. Hmm. So I feel like you know I mean you know people use say say oh Mark Zuckerberg you know he's sort of like you know antisocial or whatever. Right. I, you know I have plenty of friends that are friends with him. Uh, I, I have no opinion on that, but I know guys that are very good at reading people. Right. You know, the founder of um, Uber, Travis, is incredibly good at reading people. Sean, the you know, Ev, uh, over here at Tinder, great at reading people. Evan at Snapchat, like they know how people act. So they, it's more like the engineers, maybe. Yeah, and, maybe. I mean, yeah. I also think it's really easy to say, oh, every technology company is filled with people who uh, are of this class of personality. That's right. a very kind of, I don't know, it's, it's, a cheap and, it's a cheap low blow. I mean, of course, there's going to be engineers that are antisocial. I mean, they sit in front of a computer for 14 hours a day, every day. <laughs> right. That's not necessarily a normal thing to do. <laughs> right. um, but like, back to sort of your idea of sort of the river goes, what, to, you know, sort of either collapse or we merge. We're already merging. Okay. Yeah. Um, we have pacemakers. We sure. have titanium all hips. Titanium hips. I mean, we have a million things going on right now that are sort of the convergence of technology, biology, and like our human body. Yeah. So I think the the merger is um, already happening. Um, the distribution or the speed at which it sort of becomes something much bigger and visible, you know, than than what we have right now is unclear. Um, but I actually think there's a piece that, I, that is not dystopian, it's actually not sort of nihilistic, it's much more optimistic, which is if you look at um, sort of, I'm going to call them the millennial bucket, right, or people that are under 35 years old right now, um, something has changed and I can't really put my finger on it, but as like that amateur psychologist or sociologist, if you want to call it that, it's... It used to be about the, you know, there was the famous Goldman Sachs guy that said, you know, how, who wants to own that house on the hill? And everyone raises their hand. We want to own that house. He says, no, I want to own the man that owns that house on the hill. That was the old idea of business and how you operated and domination. technology. Domination. Right. Alpha male. And we're going to, you know, eradicate our, our, our competition. And, like, I'm seeing a very different sort mm. of... Uh, 
more centered, more sustainable, more good approach to everything. I'm seeing it in every vertical. Really? It's, it's architecture, it's, it's, it's software, and it's, it's, I think for some odd reason the light bulb has gone on in a lot of people. And it's not everybody, but a lot of smart people have decided, you know what, I guess we don't have to do it the old way. And I think it gives me hope that potentially when these mergers do happen and when artificial, artificial intelligence does come to fruition in a way that we can only imagine, that people will write good algos, will think about the implications of what they're building. And like, there's still gonna be obviously all of this collateral damage that happens on the edges. But like, I think this generation is incredibly aware of some of the trade-offs that are in front of us. And do, do you think yeah. that the people who are, who are writing these algorithms or designing these companies, do they control what the company does or are they like, are, well, are, are so they doing this, maintenance so on this, this machine? Stuff, you know, none of this stuff happens in a vacuum. And it's really the compounded effect of lots of algorithms and lots of software that equal the final product. Right. And so, the idea that there's some guy in the corner writing an algorithm that's going to do some nefarious thing, it's going to take everything down. I mean, it's a bit of a, like a Hollywood sort of yeah. script idea. Yeah. It's, it's much more of like, I think there are a lot of decisions now that are being made more consciously saying like, what is the impact of this? Where are we going with this? And everyone has to be in it together. Because like none of these companies are one person. You know what I mean? These are yeah. hundreds of people, thousands of people. I forget how many people Google employs now. It's like 30,000. It's massive. Probably all. But it's by. tiny compared to their revenue, right? Like, you know, if you sure. look at General Motors, the number of people they employed versus, you know. And it's getting small. Revenue. Like, the ratio of, like, yeah. you know, revenue to employee headcount is actually getting smaller. Yeah. Um, or, yeah. It, uh, so, it, there are a lot of interesting questions in front of us right now. Um, but I'm actually way more optimistic, and I'm optimistic not only because of like what I see here, but I'm, I just generally get a sense that people understand where like some of this technology stuff has caught a lot of people off guard, but not everybody. And yeah. like you know, I, I've heard some really smart people lately sitting down and pausing and saying, "All right, where are we going with all this? Like, what's the terminal goal here? How do we make sure and ensure that we're doing things so people in you know five years, whatever are." safer, happier, whatever. And like, I'm much more interested in the happier element of this. I actually think we're going to make good decisions. The happier version is, is, is the happy question is one that's sort of still unanswered to me. Because like when, you're, when you have all this abundance, information and access and da 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 da, how, you know, I used to measure happiness by how many times I'd wear my surf trunks, you know, in a year. You know, if I'm wearing my surf trunks like 100 days in a year, I had a pretty good year. Or, you know, how many times I'm out surfing in Malibu on a weekend. Like, if I'm there every other weekend, I feel happy. But now technology feels so, so omnipresent, so everywhere. Sometimes I pull back and go, okay, like, I need to redefine my, my, my happiness. Like, what, what does that mean to me? Because when I'm looking at Instagram and everyone's all over the world, right, and everyone looks great, or, you know, you're at yeah. Facebook updates and, like, it looks like everyone's life is perfect, right? right? And right. you go, oh, wait a second, I just got into, you know, an argument with my business partner or whatever, my boss yelled at me, like, that's not how my life is. Yeah. So I think the duality of, like, what you see online and what you actually experience is a very interesting question I actually ponder a lot. Yeah, that is an interesting question. You know, we're talking about these people sitting back and saying, where are we going mm -hmm. and what's the end goal and all that. Um, my, I just finished the second book and I'm sure. sort of halfway into a third book now. And the third book is about 
um, emergent superorganism kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. And that's why I'm asking you, to what extent are the people who run the companies actually running the companies, and to what extent are companies running the people? Because I often yeah. think, you know, I'll talk to people about, you know, I'll be bad-mouthing Exxon or something, and uh, my father, who worked in big companies, he'd always say, good people work at Exxon. You know what, and you're right, the CEO of Exxon could be, could go to Peru with his son and take ayahuasca and have a, you know, complete mind-blowing experience. On Vice. <laughs> On Vice, exactly. Yeah. I just did a Vice show last, two weeks ago in That's New York. Awesome. That was interesting. Yeah. Uh, anyway, you know, and they comes, you come to the, the conference room like this and say, gentlemen, we have to stop deep water drilling. We can't. We're ruining the world. We don't have the technology to assure that we're not going to have another Gulf of Mexico go blowout we have to stop this what's going to happen to that guy he's going to be out on his ass before lunch right yeah so it doesn't so, matter so, what yeah, people I, decide so i think you know wall street plays a big role in this yeah okay and like the wall street you know anyone who knows sort of anything about business 101 it's, it's a quarterly driven quarterly. deal and, um, and when's it going to be like monthly it, well, you know because well, it, it used is, to be it, annual it, it, reports it, well it is monthly internally you know for the company yeah um, <laughs> it's going to be yeah. minute by minute revenue change it, it, you know? it really there, there are people that are actually working on the edges to think about capitalism a little more consciously and like there yeah. are like um I mean, if you've seen some of the stuff that's going on with sort of Alphabet or um, Facebook, like they're not playing the exact same rules that everyone else played. So things are changing a little bit, but like capitalism is this incredible, incredible beast, as we all know. Yeah. And it, I still think that in the capitalistic sort of, sort of chain, the workflow, there are people, and people are going to make conscious decisions along the way that impact either good or bad. And I think that as long as culturally and like this young group of millennials, it's coming up, or I mean, these are going to be the business leaders of the next, you know, whatever, 30 years. I think you're going to see a lot of change. And I've seen a bunch of cool things on the edges that like have no impact today, but uh, mm. I'm aware of a, a company that's doing sort of like a stock market, um, but it's not driven by quarterly returns. Like, so they want to create sort of NASDAQ, but have it much more tied to long, long-term performance where people can right. think much further than sort of what's next. Right. Um, meaning the next quarter. Um, so I think like it's going to take time to change the old guard and move over. And I mean, but look at, look at what happened on Wall Street. I mean, in a decade, Wall Street went from the place everyone wanted to work, not everyone, but a lot of people, and real fancy and cool, Gordon Gecko, right, to like a lot of people. <laughs> I mean, you, you go recruit now any of these premium sort of top-tier universities, no one wants to go to Wall Street anymore. Where do they want to go now? Well, they want to go to Google and Facebook and Uber and hopefully Tinder. My right. nice little plug for us. But right. they want to go to places that are a little bit more, you know, technologically focused and savvy and young and cool and hip and all that. And right. I, I think some of that too is just like, is that just because the money's better here? Um, you make more money if you get in early in a startup. Yeah, I mean, there's the money's always a, a huge driver, but it's just it's it's it's. It's ethos, too. I mean, mm. you're, you're walking around here. Does this feel like really, I mean, obviously, it's a very nice office, but this feels like kind of an extension of a, like a graduate school. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And all these places are designed to be like that. That isn't, like, that's a conscious decision. You want people to feel comfortable. There's snacks. There's, you know, a place, a couch. We have all these, 
you know, gaming areas in the corner where you can do your VR. Like it's designed to make it. Make yeah, people and there are all those guys with the bong over there in the corner. <laughs> yeah, no comment on that great. one. And yeah. The Jimi Hendrix post. Yeah, the Jimi. Yeah, <laughs> the blue lights <laughs> or black lights. So exactly. yeah. Um, so I mean, uh, you know, yeah. it's the, some of this stuff is is it. You know, you could you could sort of argue for hours, but um, I, I hope I'll say this. I, I really hope that this next generation also takes a huge leadership role and you're starting to see it. I mean, you know, a lot of these people have only been around for four or five years, but they're already enacting huge change. Yeah. And I hope me, that's you're right, man. I really hope you're right. But, you know, I look at like the generation of the 60s and the 70s who were all into, you know, the hippies, smoking yeah. weed yeah. and free love and all that. And then, but when they got into positions of power, what happened? You know, Bill Clinton, yeah, I use drugs, but nobody else should. And, you know, it's like it, it, there's something about being in a position of power that strips away all the insights that you have when you're young. But, but one, one thing I would say, though, is this, this generation has an agent for change, which is the technological platform. You're right. And that, that is, is different. And, and yeah. they actually uh, are sort of pulling the levers of it as well. Mm. And that's different. Um, and, yeah. and that's also global. And that, You're you know, right. It's, I it's, mean, this podcast blows my mind that you and I do this on this little machine on the table I, in front of us. I put, plug it in my computer, push a few buttons, and tens of thousands of people are listening to it 10 minutes later. Voila. It's crazy. It's it, mind it really is crazy. And there's nobody telling me what I can say, what, who I can talk to. And that is revolutionary. Right. And yeah. I, I go back to this word of global. Yeah. I, you know, it's, it's, it's hard to think globally. Because, yeah. you know, I mean, you've traveled a lot and, and you have a lot of different experiences. Most people, you know, I think we looked at something the other day. It was like people spend 93% of their time within like three miles of yeah. wherever they live. When you think like someone in Shenzhen, someone in Brisbane, someone in, hmm. you know, Nairobi can be listening to us and understanding our, you know, our opinions, whether they're good or bad or bullshit or cool, right. that's crazy. And yeah. that's why that gives me hope. Um, and, I, and, and I'll be I'll be clear with you too. The tools are only getting better. Yeah. Like you think this is the utopia or that this is the Everest of how you're going to communicate. I mean, there are going to be things coming out that will make this look ossified. I've seen it. Yeah. And so the question now is like, let's just hope that let's hope some of these people that are are, are going to step up to that next level make the right decisions. Yeah. Yeah. I uh, I'll tell you one one entity that thinks globally is companies. Mm -hmm. You Co have to. Countries are countries are a fiction. Mm -hmm. As far as I'm concerned, countries are like sports teams. They're just something to keep local people occupied. Mm -hmm. But they're you know GM. I don't know about Tinder. Is Tinder an American company? It's a global company. Yeah. I mean I don't know where the finances are, and I know you can't talk about right. that. But I think the idea that there's an American company or a French company, I think that's all. Oh, that's an that's a, yeah. I, I I certainly don't think that way. Yeah. Yeah. Not at all. So how many people on on Tinder? Do you have any sense? Are they looking for? Are they looking for marriage, or are they looking for hookups? You know what? So this is one of those questions that I get every day. Yeah. And I answer it exactly the same. People are looking for all sorts of things. Yeah. And like this is like, think of Tinder as the real world. 
You have friends that are looking for someone to have coffee with. You have a friend who's looking for someone to go paddle boarding with. Right. You have a friend that wants a girlfriend. You've got the clingy fang who wants to get married. You have the, you know, yeah. uh, the, the gal on the street that just got divorced. You have the widow. I mean, we have everything. Yeah. And, and we make introductions really easy, really seamless, really fast. And I think that yeah. to, gather, like, to categorize Tinder would be sort of unfair because guess what? The, it, 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 people have lots of different intentions. And most of all, you got people who are looking for something and find something else. That's the way life works, right? right. You like might be looking to get laid and you end up finding your soulmate. You right, and know. we have like, I mean, there, there's so many. We have a, uh, sorry, a psychologist on staff and she's great. And she's always like pulling up sort of little vignettes of what's going on and like, you know, there's people who have found like donors, like I forget, it was a kidney donor or something like that. I mean, just <laughs> the craziest things you've ever heard. Yeah. But I mean, this is, a, this is, you know, you have yeah. millions of people. Yeah. And people have very different intentions. And, yeah. you know, we're about matching them up, creating that introduction right. and doing it where I think one of the sort of, sort of real drivers of how Tinder became successful is we have something called the double opt-in, which means right. I have to say, Right. You know, I right swipe you, you right swipe me. It says now we have permission to chat. Right. What that removes is sort of stigma around you liking me. Because if you don't like me and you left swipe me, I don't know. Right. That's a big thing. I yeah. mean, I know that it doesn't sound big, but if you kind of pull back for a second, for millions of people yeah. who are awkward or you know, don't have the courage or, or just rejection don't have, or is, just, yeah, we're just, all afraid right. of it. Right. Yeah. Well, everyone's afraid of it, no yeah. matter if you're the biggest alpha player in the world. Yeah. Um, Removing that is a really, really powerful force of nature. And it's, I think, been sort of the key catalyst yeah. to the growth of the company. It's a compassionate technology, actually. We try, we, yeah. and we're, we're, we're proud of that. Yeah. Um, you know, some people abuse it, but people abuse anything that has access and scale. Yeah, yeah. Listen, I know you're a super busy guy, so I, I won't keep you. I could, sure. you and I could talk forever. I well, think. throw it's me one really more fun. question then. <laughs> <laughs> one more question. Uh, you're 36 years old. You've you've created and sold several companies. Mm -hmm. I'm sure you have more money than you could possibly spend in your lifetime. What the hell is that like? So you know, what's interesting is is. For me, uh, I think of money as just sort of more fuel to pursue sort of wilder projects, not feel the pain of, you know, having to go to the uncle or, you know, your friend around the corner and ask right. him for 15K. Um, at the same time, it's also a little bit, uh, to be quite honest, it, it, it puts some weight on you. Yeah. Um, no the bad. weight is you become a little less um, aggressive, um, less scrappy. Uh, and you, you know, I always think, I always tell all the entrepreneurs that I work with, because I coach a lot of people and I have a lot of investments, I always say like, how do you compete with yourself? It's a really profound question, but if you were gonna compete with yourself, how would you do it? And so when I think about, you know, access to capital and having money, I always think, okay, like, this is gonna, this is, this is taking it up a notch. I wanna, I still wanna be like really aggressive and really fast and really like, I, I, wanna, I wanna have a point of view. But now I have access to capital, so I've got to even be more thoughtful about my approach. And so it's just, it's caused me to really, A, take a little bit more risk on things. And I, I love taking bets on long shots on companies. You know, like, you know, sort of like the crazier the idea, the more I'm interested. I like, and, and that's fun. So can you be happy? All right, like, mm -hmm. so, so you're, you're this guy who's at a poker table. Yeah. 
and yeah, you've won some, you've lost some, but your chips are accumulating. Mm -hmm. Is there a point where you say, where you cash out and you say, I'm just going to go surf you know, and read books? So I, 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 would I would love to just go surf a lot of days, but I just don't think, you know, that is a kind of a utopian idea that a lot of people have, have sold to a lot of people. And I just don't know if it's real. So there's no exit for you. There's no, no like, I just, like for, enough. No, for me, I just want to keep... I, I think we talked about this before the podcast started. I, I, I want to keep um, being in sort of the deal flow of interesting people. Mm. And whether it's like uh, you know a, a chef, an architect, uh, some, a, a personal trainer, like I just like interesting people. And I think yeah. having even more access is really cool. Right. And so, you know, it, it goes Does back. that come with money? Or no, I just no. think, I mean, it comes with also just being, you know, how I found you, you know, just being curious about the world. And I think someone told me about the book and said, and I read it, read it a couple of times, like, wow, this is really cool stuff. Um, so I think having, you know, a platform like a Tinder or whatever underneath you just gives you a little bit more of that, that sort of right. that fuel and I and I tend to I tend to think that the other thing about this sort of question about just absolute money right oh you have money what do you do with it right the money generation is not interested in accumulating more stuff and you know buying more stuff it's mm. very very sort of like stuff light experience heavy right and I think that that's it's actually really uh, it's powerful because people are more you know they're investing in being with other people, seeing cool things, going to Machu Picchu, surfing in Tavarua, like this is the type of stuff that this generation like at least aspirationally wants to do. Right. And you know, the old day is of you get a mortgage, you get a house, you get the fence, you get the dog, you get all that stuff. Like that is not necessarily as interesting as it used to be. Do you think that applies to sexuality as well? So it's oh. not like have a wife and settle down, it's like have absolutely. fifteen girlfriends. Well or you know, boyfriends. Yeah, or boyfriend what so absolutely. Hmm. And I think what what uh, we're seeing today is because of technology, um, because of all of this sort of interconnected nature of, 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 of this stuff, if we want to call it that, you're seeing a lot more sampling. Yeah. And sampling is actually a good thing. It's a powerful thing. You know, you, you don't have to marry the one girl that kissed you at the senior prom anymore. Right. Like that, that, you know, and I'm not saying I didn't go to the senior prom in 1955, but, you know, I, I, I tend to kind of hear stories like that. and, and I don't know what that means for the progress of humanity or where, do they, like, where that, that takes us, but yeah. I do know that like, having a perspective, being able to find things that you like or dislike is a very, very, that's a, that's a, that's a human need and, and, and I think we're facilitating that. And I think it's changing sexuality dramatically. I, I mean, if you look yeah. at major cities right now, yeah. you, know, you, you take a sort of a cross section of San Francisco, Los Angeles, New York, there's not a lot of people getting married under 35. I just read a thing recently, uh, I think it was less than 30% of millennials aspire to a monogamous relationship in right. their lives. They're like, not even looking for that, you know? Right. It's just radical. I often think- very quickly. Yeah, I mean, I often think, and this sort of ties into what you've been saying, I feel like what's happening now is that we're returning to a sort of primordial human existence but enabled by technology. Yeah, you know, I, you know, I skimmed your book before I got here again. I was kind of thinking about that sort of going back to that sort of tribal thing, and there are different people, and but they're sort of in close proximity, and you're sampling, and maybe, 
you know, you have one girlfriend and then you have another, I, you know. I, and they I mean, know each yeah, other. Right. And, and then, like, you raise kids together. And there's a lot of that happening yeah. now, and you know. And People there's also, finding like, communities. I mean, isn't that what's going on in, like, Iceland or well, some a couple of Nordic countries yeah. as well? Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's hard. It's, it's uh, clearly things are changing. Yeah. That is, uh, I think, undisputable. And, like, you said something about the aspiration of marriage. Yeah, marriage was an incredible, it still is aspirational, but it was incredibly aspirational. And I, I don't feel the same weight about it. I mean, not personally, but just societal, culturally. Like, I just don't feel like there's the same weight before. And a lot of that is great, too. I feel like, you know, um, some of the progress, too, is uh, sort of centered around sort of female empowerment and yeah. women having a lot of choice. Like, right. this idea that, like, you know, women are in control right now is very real. And I actually think it's great. Yeah. It's it's taming this place a little bit. Yeah. Well, that that's another nice thing about Tinder that it definitely it, it, it's an egalitarian technology, right. right? Nobody's in control of who meets. Not a bit. It's no meat market like where the women are on display. Everybody's, you know, playing the same game. Everybody's playing the same game. Yeah. And that's good. That and that, you know, we we we're going to continue to build more features and more tools where women feel empowered. Right. And that's that's right. a really important part of our roadmap right now. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, this has been great, man. Thank, Thank you. you. I really. Thank you. You're an unusual guest for this podcast. I, it's. Uh, Can I, I throw my Twitter handle out? Throw, throw out everything you yeah, want. So yeah. So my Twitter course, handle yeah. is uh, Brian Norgard. B R I A N N O R G A R D. Right. Yeah. Good. And uh, so, aspiring technology people are going to overwhelm you. <laughs> Fantastic. Bring it. <laughs> Bring it. All right. Thanks, Brian. I hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. Thank you to everybody who supports the podcast through Patreon.com. You can decide how much you want to give the podcast, a buck a month, five bucks a month, ten bucks a month, or you can get completely crazy and give 20 bucks a month or more. Or you can give nothing. If you don't have any cash, don't worry about it. Just enjoy the podcast and tell your friends. The other way you can support the podcast is if you buy shit through Amazon.com or you know someone who does. Please direct them through the link on my page, chrisryanphd.com. You click on that baby once, bookmark the landing page on Amazon, and then 8 to 10% of whatever you spend will come to support the podcast at no extra cost to you or your loved ones. Thank you to Basin and Range for that opening music at the beginning of the podcast. Very funky little tune there uh, called The Bright Side of the Sun, I believe. You can find out more about them at basinandrangeband.com. If you want to talk about the podcast with other listeners, a good place to do that is on Reddit. Just search Tangentially Speaking, all one word. There's a community of a couple hundred people in there chatting about the episodes. I drop in occasionally and say hello, answer questions, whatever. Uh, thanks to Shore Design T-shirts. Our garage is full of them. My mom has them all organized as only she can. Julie, thank you to Julie, my mom. She'll send those T-shirts out to you if you order them. Everything we've got in stock is from Shore Design T-shirts in Thailand. And you can check out their webpage as well for other designs. Thank you to Carsey Blanton. You can find out more about Carsey Blanton at CarseyBlanton.com. C-A-R-S-I-E-B-L-A-N-T-O-N.com. She wrote and performed the song you're about to hear, which is called Smoke Alarm. And it's a reminder to carpe fucking diem while you still can because... Ladies and gentlemen, you're going to die one day. Here's to you, Bennett. He said, 
Baby, what's a big deal? Feel what you wanna feel. Say what you wanna say. You're gonna die one day. For example, I could kiss you just because I want to. What's the difference if you turn away? I'm gonna die one day. Why do you waste your time thinking about your reputation? Trying to meet an expectation, wondering what they're gonna say. When everyone you've ever known is headed for a headstone. Doesn't ask for much. A little music and a soft touch. Why don't you let it out to play? Your heart is in a birdcage, singing in your chest. You wanna shut it up but give it a rest. You're gonna die one day. Why do we waste our time thinking about a reputation? Running from a confrontation, wondering what we ought to say. <laughs> When everyone we've ever known is headed for a headstone, I don't wanna give the end away. We're gonna die one day. We're gonna die one day. We're gonna die one day. So baby, what's a big deal? If you wanna be free, say what you wanna feel. Spend the night with me. I'm gonna take you up in my arms, and if we must go down, we'll go singing to the smoke alarms. We'll dance into the ground.